Good evening. Good to see y'all. Or actually, all y'all is plural. We'll sing as the deer, and then Michael have her opening prayer. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we come as your people, asking us, asking you to make us like you. Knit us together, cause the love to flow to each other, and make us family. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gift and the salvation it brings to us. Help us to keep that in mind and not to forget it, that we are all in this because of him. And we pray in his name. Take in the Lord's Supper. We'll sing Jesus Rose of Sharon. Jesus Rose of Sharon.
Father, this evening we come, we're so thankful for all the blessings that we have in this life. But the one most important blessing that we have was the example that, that you sent down to, to this earth to, to live for us and show us the way, and then in the end, be a sacrifice for us. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the body that he had that was able to be on this earth. We're thankful that, that he was willing to give it up. And we're, at this time, we're thankful for the, for the bread that we have that represents that body. And as we partake of this bread, we pray that we'll do so pleasing unto you. In Christ's name, amen. Continuing in thanks, Father. We're thankful for the blood that was shed on the cross. We're thankful for the power that was in the blood, that it was able to, to, to wash away our sins. It continues to do that all, throughout all this time. And it's this time where, as we partake of the fruit of the vine that represents that blood, once again, we pray that we'll do so in a manner pleasing to you. In Christ's name. Father, we're thankful for all the blessings that we have. 
We're thankful for our homes. We're thankful for this beautiful building that we have here. We're thankful for this quiet place that we have. We're thankful for this town that we have and that, that we can live here in peace. Father, we, we pray now as we return a portion of what you've given to us that, that this money will be used, that, that, that your name might continue to grow and, and we might continue to be a light here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always dear. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. All right, so we are continuing our discussion on the great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12. And before we get to the text that we're in tonight, I wanted to kind of remind you of how we got here to this text. First of all, we started in Hebrews chapter 11, and 
the Hebrew writer goes through a list of famous, for the most part, famous people in the Bible and uh, gives you a little synopsis of each one of their stories. And some of them are in there because of the amazing things that were accomplished through and for and by God with them. Others are in there because of the difficulty of their struggle, the amount of suffering that they went through, the amount of pain that they endured on the behalf of God, and more specifically getting into the New Testament era on behalf of what the Christians were going to go through for Jesus and for the love that we have for him. So you get through that and we start in chapter 12 with the great cloud of witnesses. He says, so these people are still watching you. They're still rooting you on. They're still waiting on you. If you remember in the end of Hebrews 11, they're still waiting on you to complete the task that we've all been tasked to do together. So we're surrounded by this witness, this great group of people that um, are not only the ones obviously in Hebrews 11, but all those who come before us who have put God before themselves and lived a life that honored and glorified him. Then he says, then he talks to us about endurance. And he talks about us for, uh, in endurance in two different ways. He talks about endurance for, from the perspective of two different points. The first one is persecution. Persecution is going to come your way because you love God. That's a simple reference that you can find all through Scripture. It's a simple um, um, thing that you can derive very easily if you spend a little bit of time in the Bible. If you love God, persecution is going to come your way. The world is going in one direction. God is going in the other. If you start to head in the direction opposite of the world, persecution is going to come your way. Then he talks about discipline. So life can be hard for a Christian for two different reasons. The first one being persecution. The second one being discipline. If God loves you, he's your father and he loves you and you need to be disciplined. He would not love you the way a father should love a child if he's not willing to discipline that child, to teach him, to better him, to get somebody on the right track. So you've got the good mixed in with the bad. You know why? Because that's real life. Most of us in here might say, at least I hope most of us in here would say, that we've had a good life. But I think even though we've had a good life, we can think of a couple spots in our life, a couple times in our life, that if we were the author of our life, if we got to uh, dictate how our life played out, we would probably rewrite a few parts. That's life. So that's where we get to the text that we're at tonight. It's Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Remember, he's talked about all the different characters, all the different people of the Bible, going through a long list of people and the trials that they endured, even down to the people that he says were, were the world was not worthy of because of the suffering they endured for the sake of God. 
And then again, he gets to that. He reminds you that that witness, that great cloud of witnesses is surrounding you. It's with you. And then he talks about persecution and discipline. So at this point in the text, we're not exactly at the, probably the, the bright spot, the encouraging spot, the exciting spot, if you will, is probably right at the beginning of Hebrews 12, where he's talking about the great cloud of witnesses. Outside of that, he's talking about some pretty mature, tough stuff. And he starts like this in verse 12. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands because you know that the stuff that you're going through is either persecution because you love God or discipline because God loves you. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, I was thinking about this from the perspective of my own life. And in, and in, um, in college, I got a devastating injury my senior year. The reason why it was super devastating was because I was leading the league in scoring by several goals. And I was actually just getting ready to take a shot where I had reached out to kind of get it. And the other guy, the defender was kind of running through it. And needless to say, I got the ball. He didn't. And he got my ankle. And normally when you roll your ankle, you roll your ankle like from the outside in, right? You kind of fall outside and you roll your ankle. I can't step too far out. I'll be out of the camera. But you roll your ankle like this. That's normally how you roll your ankle. Rolling your ankle this way is very difficult. Try to roll it. It doesn't work this way very well. Well, <clears throat> because of the angle of the shot that I was taking in the direction that the defender had charged in on me, he got all of my ankle on the inside and I rolled my ankle this way. And I will never forget to this day the pain that I felt as it felt like my foot separated from my leg. It was five seconds after I finally regained my composure, because I know I spent five seconds just rolling around, avoiding everybody who was fighting for the ball around me because I didn't get a penalty kick or anything. So I'm rolling around, and once I come back to life, literally, <laughs> from the shock, I look down in my ankle, I'm not, I cannot, I, I'm not kidding. It was a softball already. It was enormous. So of course they get me off the car, they get me off the field. I'm not like um, the famous players. I didn't get a stretcher and get carted off. I'm not, it wasn't like that. But I remember even just getting off the field every step, even though I never touched this foot to the ground, every step I felt in my foot, every step. And they wrapped me in ice and, and we went home. And I went to um, the rehab that was connected to our school and they told me it was 12 weeks rehab, that I wouldn't be able to play for 12 weeks. Well, 12 weeks the season was gonna be over and it was my senior season. And I didn't want to hear that. So I said, what can I do to improve 
those numbers? What can I do to try to speed up the process? You know, I'm young, I'm pretty tough. I could probably handle it. Just get it somewhat working and I'll get back in the game. And they told me two things. They said, first thing is an ice bath. If you've ever taken an ice bath, they're awful. There's nothing fun about an ice bath. It is miserable pain. That's what it is. But it does amazing things for your body. Now, they weren't talking about me getting in. Like, if you've seen the guys who get in, especially fighters, boxers, that sort of uh, football players, they do whole body ice baths. Those guys are machines. I don't even know how they get in. If you see the new Patrick Mahomes commercial where he's dropping the salt bombs into the, that's an ice bath. But for me, I had to take my foot and I had to put it into a bucket full of ice and water, a nice, beautiful slush, as they call it. And if you've ever had a foot injury, there is a lot of nerves in your feet. Your feet are actually a very sensitive part of your body. So if you've ever had a foot injury and you've ever iced your foot through that injury, you know what I'm talking about. It is excruciating. I think I'm a pretty tough person. I think I have a very high pain tolerance. But this is one of those things where I had to dip my foot in for a couple minutes. I couldn't stand it anymore. Pull it out. Dip my foot back in for a couple minutes. I couldn't stand it anymore. Pull it out. And it was like that. And I did it every four hours on the hour until I got the go to play again. Another thing we did was stem treatment. And if you've never done stem treatment, stem treatment is terrible too. So ice helps your muscle. Stem helps your tissue. All right, it's electric shock therapy. That's what it was. They put all these pads all over me and my foot just went like this. Sometimes I went like this. When they turned it up, And these were things that I had to do. They were painful experiences, but I will tell you that I was back playing with an air cast four weeks after my injury. Eight weeks after my injury, I was playing with no air cast fully back. Now, I could have ignored it. I could have disregarded it. I could have potentially just drug it behind me for the rest of my life. And maybe I could have figured out how to get around with it. But ultimately, if I don't heal my ankle properly, then I'm going to favor my ankle. And when I start to favor my ankle and start to walk different and start to treat my cadence different, guess what that's going to affect? It's going to affect my knee. And then, because I've done that for so long, now I'm favoring everything and now I'm even starting to mess with my knee. Guess what that's going to affect? That's going to affect my hip. And before long, I'm not going to walk anywhere like I used to. I'm not going to be able to walk the way I used to. This is exactly what the Hebrew writer is talking about. He's saying, look, when you have an injury, when you have something that's broken, you need to heal it. You need to heal it. Right? He says, so that what is lame, that what is broken, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, what is lame or um, needs repairing doesn't become something that is paralyzed, something that doesn't work at all anymore. So therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather... Be healed. 
And then he says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So I love this part because in 14 he starts with strive for peace with everyone. This, this feeds right into the conversation we were having this morning with agape love, with that love that's all in, with that highest form of love. The way God loves us, God expects to, us to turn that around and love others the same way. And so he says, strive for peace with everyone, not just people you get along with, not just people that are like-minded, not just people that um, you enjoy because maybe you share in certain hobbies. No, even your enemies. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the, the Lord. See, the holiness is exactly what it sounds like. It's what sets us apart. It's what makes us different. When we are holy, we are trying to act like God. We have separated ourselves out of the equation and what we are left with is a production or a product of our relationship with God. That's what holiness is. When it says to be set apart, be holy as I am holy, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate God. That's the holiness. It's the part that makes you different than the rest of the world. It's the part that makes you love people even though they might not love you back. It's the part that makes you strive for peace with people who might not want peace with you. In verse 15, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is a calling. This is not the Hebrew writer saying, hey, this sounds like a good idea. No, this is part of our mission. This is part of who we're supposed to be. This should be something that is greatly on our heart. We want to make sure that nobody misses the opportunity to have the grace of God, which means we need to share the gospel with those that we love. We need to share the gospel with those that we don't love. Sometimes we have to be Jonah and go to Nineveh, even though we don't want to. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is our job. This is who we are. This is who we are called to be. And yet again, it's part of that holiness that comes from being godly, from being set apart, from getting out of myself and trying to live and look and act like God. Even love, as we talked about this morning, like God. This is part of who we are. This is our calling. And then he says that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble and by it many become defiled. What do you do when you're bitter? I talked about this a little bit because of some things I was going through in the past not that long ago. Some of you might remember that. But what do you do when you're bitter? You know, I, um, I was sharing this with Chuck before um, tonight, but I have a friend He's a youth minister at Mary Camp Road Church Christ. His name is John Bernard. We call him Beef. He's a big boy. He loves the Gators. And, I mean, if you think Chuck's bad, 
Chuck's a rookie compared to Beef. No, I, no Chuck's actually just a good Gator fan compared to Beef. That's the truth. Um, so, needless to say, we have a, he's part of the SunQuest board. We have a group text that we share in the SunQuest board. Well, James Moore decided to congratulate me being the only Florida State fan on the board surrounded by a bunch of Florida Gator fans. He happens to be an Alabama fan, so I think he just likes to stir the pot every now and then. He happened to congratulate me on the group text in front of everybody. Well, Beef, he was a little bitter. He was a little bitter. And instead of just saying congratulations back, he said, it's really nice to know that my 6-6 six six Gators were worth storming the field for you Knowles. Because our, our student section jumped out and stormed the field. Well, being that I wasn't bitter because I was in a jovial, loving mood at the time, as I, <laughs> as I discussed this morning, I decided not to respond to him and let him know that my fans charged the field, not because we just beat the six and six Gators, because it's the first time we've went nine and three since that group of kids have been at that school. We were having a turnaround moment. We could have beat anybody. It just helped that it was the Gators. See, his bitterness was trying to spread into my love and joy. The difference was, I was at a place where his bitterness, it only made me happier. And that's rare. Because here's the truth. When you are bitter, this is what you do. You find things to complain about. That's exactly where we're at. You find things to complain about. And not only do you find things to complain about, you bring people in because you don't want to be the only one complaining. And before long, your bitterness is attaching to other people and causing other people to be bitter. The things that most people wouldn't complain about or would overlook, now they're starting to complain about. I'll give you another perfect example. My, um, this is, I'm going to go in dangerous territory. I'm going to go in really dangerous territory. My in-laws are very particular. Amy's father is a very particular person. He can do just about anything with his hands. He can build a house from top to bottom, which really don't do it that way, but he can do it. Almost anything you want he can do, and even though he is getting up in his age and he is not as healthy as he used to be, he still can make things look beautiful. So we walk into my brand new home, and to me it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life because it's mine. And for him, all he sees is where when they sprayed the texture on the wall, they got it on the tile. And where the guys were doing the grout on the tile, they didn't clean it up perfectly. So now there's also grout on the tile. And every little spot that didn't get covered with paint, he made sure to point to me. And every Every piece of drywall that had to be patched before we moved in that you could see, he made sure he pointed out. And you know what he wanted me to do? He wanted me to call them and tell them, you guys better get over here and fix this. 
And I'm not saying he was being bitter, but it, it, definitely, it definitely made me start to notice everything I probably wouldn't have. And it made me less excited about my house. Truth be told, until everything settled down. And then I got in and it felt really comfortable and I could care less about a little bit of splatter here or a little bit of grout here or a spot of paint that got missed here because my family is really what makes my home, not the paint on the wall or the grout on the floor. But this is how bitterness works. So it's important to understand that when you're struggling with bitterness in your life, you need to understand that bitterness is one of those sins, it's one of those struggles that affects the people that are around you. It feeds into them. The same way joy can feed into your environment and your atmosphere, if you're a joyful person, People can come to you, they're not, that, they're not full of joy, and you can build them up. Bitterness, people can come to you full of joy, and you can tear them down. Everybody can become miserable, or, uh, miserable around somebody who is bitter. <clears throat> and then he says this, and this is actually where we're going to end tonight. So... When Doug comes back, remind him that we ended early both times he was gone. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now, I think this is interesting. I don't want to go too far before I say this, but I think this is very interesting that Esau is talked about in this way. In the biblical account that we have, this isn't exactly what we find. We don't find Esau as being somebody who's running around being sexually immoral. We find Esau as being the second part that he says right here, where he says, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, let me open this up a little bit. Even though we kind, of discuss, we kind of discussed it in Hebrews 11, let me remind you, in, in case you forgot a little bit, about what's going on here. So Esau, he goes out on a hunt. When he comes back, he's starving. Jacob has made him, has made soup. He wants some soup. He says, I'll give you some soup, but you need to give me your birthright. He's like, fine, give me the soup. You can have my birthright, no problem. And then when it comes the day for his father to give the blessing... You remember Jacob sneaks in, pretends he's Esau, and he gets the blessing. Now, I want you to focus on this bottom part, because I think it explains something very unique. Something you don't necessarily see in the Genesis account that you see with the help of the Hebrew writer here. Do you remember what happens after Jacob gets the blessing? In comes Esau. And what does Esau say? Yeah, he says, well, let's talk about what he doesn't say first. Does he repent? Does he beg God and his father for, for, for forgiveness? No. Now, the blessing... For those who would be spiritual, for those who would be focused on God, 
has a bigger connotation than I'm going to get all dad's stuff. It has the connotation that follows the promise of God all the way back from Abraham. Because Jacob turns into Israel and has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. God's people. People. It should have been Esau. But Esau gave away his birthright. I know what some of you are thinking. There was a little bit of prophetic stuff going on at their birth. That's fair. But this is what happened. So when Esau walks in the room and he realizes that Jacob has now received the blessing, he doesn't come in and say, Dad, I'm so sorry. I, I, was, I, was, I just made a really dumb decision that day and I was so hungry. I couldn't think about, I just couldn't think right. Forgive me. He doesn't have that moment with God in the scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't have that moment at all. He comes in and this is what he says. His dad says, I already gave the blessing away. Esau says, wait, there's, you're telling me there's no blessing left for me? There's no blessing left for me? Now, what I want you to understand is, to me, to me, he wants something physical. He realizes that Jacob just inherited all of his dad's stuff through the birthright. It was all going to be passed to him. He was now going to become the servant to his brother where he should have been the one that got everything and Jacob should have been his servant for the rest of his life. This flipped. He just wants to make sure there's nothing left for him. That's what he asks. Wait, there's no blessing for me? And he gets a blessing. It doesn't sound much like a blessing. So I want you to understand that what the Hebrew writer is not saying is that you can sin and repent through tears and God is such a harsh, hard God that you won't receive forgiveness. Esau wasn't looking for forgiveness. He was looking for his stuff back that he lost on that day. He wasn't respecting God. And if, if you have argument or if you have debate with what I'm, I'm saying, go look at Esau's life after this moment. Go look at Esau's children and what they become being the Edomites after this moment. Go look at his legacy that disappears and is completely destroyed because of their sinfulness. So, I, I want to save this, the last part of Hebrews for next week. So I just got three points. The first one comes with the very beginning. Right? This, this scripture right here. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet. <clears throat> you are not defeated. I know sometimes it feels like we're defeated. I know sometimes it feels like you are, you are running against the current. You are 
in an uphill battle. You are in a hardship because of the God that you serve. You will partake in suffering because he suffered. You will partake in persecution because he was persecuted. You will be hated at times because he was hated, but you are not defeated. In fact, you are far from it. You are on the side of victory. You are on the side that overcomes the world. That's exactly what you are. You're an overcomer. So he says, Consider all these people and everything that we, they went through. Consider this great cloud of witnesses that is surrounding you. Consider the fact that God promised you you were going to be persecuted and you've seen it all through the history of God's people. Consider also the fact that God, because he loves you, is going to discipline you. And at times that's going to be rough to go through. But don't sulk. You know, I tell Nathan something he doesn't like. This is exactly what he does. <sighs> he droops his hands. Change your posture. When you're in one of those places where you feel down, change your posture. Your story's not done yet. Life goes through its ups and its downs. Life goes through its hardships and life goes through its amazing victories and, and, and wonderful experiences. Change your posture. When you're in one of those places where it's hard and you feel down all the time, change your outlook. And then he says, strengthen your weak knees. Now I was trying to think of um, when you get weak in the knee, what that really means. And the first one's obviously... I was thinking of all these love songs, right? So there's like the swooning weak knees. It's still nerves. You're still nervous. You're so caught up by the beauty of this person that you're getting nervous. It's like butterflies in your stomach. It's weak in the knees. You feel a little bit light on your feet. But weak in the knees also means to be scared. To be a coward to be afraid, again, to feel defeated. That's why he says, strengthen your knees. Posture up and renew your strength. Renew your resolve. Renew that commitment that you have to God. The refining fire of God isn't always the funnest thing, but it's a necessary part of life. And then he says, what I think is very interesting, he says, make your path straight. We know that God makes our path straight. But he's not saying, allow God to make your path straight. He's saying, you make your paths straight. In other words, make better choices, put it all together, change your posture. When things are going hard for you, don't sit here feeling defeated. Change your posture. Don't be afraid of the things that are to come. Don't sit here and cower. Don't feel like you're just stuck in a place where you can't do anything about it. Renew your resolve. And then when you're done with that, make better choices. Make better choices. You ever tell that to your children? My children are just like me. I tell them that all the time. Make better choices. You don't like where you're at? Make better choices. Now, making the right choice all the time doesn't guarantee you that you're always going to end up in the right place. 
We got tons of stories like that too. We got tons of examples in the Bible that talk about people who didn't do anything really wrong and end up in a bad place. You know, I was thinking about the most with that. Paul. How many times did he end up in prison? How many times did he end up just in the struggle? How many of his letters have you read where he looked dejected, where he sounded dejected, where he sounded like he was devastated, where he sounded like he was defeated? He's in prison worshiping and God's opening jail doors. And they're walking out. Number two, embrace the struggle. You ever heard that before? That's very popular, very popular phrase in the youth culture right now. Embrace the struggle. But it's true. Life is going to be a struggle. It doesn't matter who you follow. It doesn't matter what you do. There's going to be struggles in life. You can exercise every single day. You can eat all the right stuff. And at times your body is going to fail you. It's going to be a struggle. You can make all the right choices and still up at, end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Life is going to be a struggle. You can do all the right things and still end up in a place where the situation gets out of control. Because you can't control everything. Life is going to be a struggle. Find me one person in the New Testament, or Old Testament for that matter, where life was no struggle for them. Where everything just came easy. It just doesn't happen. But the second part of this is just as important as the first. And I think it's the part that we've actually discussed a couple different times in a roundabout way. So I'm going to do my best right now to make it as obvious as possible, which is God knows you're going to struggle. That's why he's given you an abundance of grace. If the image of Christ is what we are to live up to, none of us can live up to it. Somebody came to me after, after church this morning and said, Matt, you're exactly right. Agape love is what God calls us all to, but agape love is actually what none of us can have. He's not wrong. We can strive to love others the way God loves us, but we actually truly can never love anyone the way that God loves us because God's love is perfect. So God gave you an abundance of grace. He's given you he knows you're going to struggle, but don't use that as an excuse. And I always go back to Romans 6 because to me, that's the one that sticks in my head from Paul. Where he says, just because you have grace doesn't mean you should just carry on sinning as if nothing matters. I don't think God wants you to feel dejected. But there are times where he's disciplining you, where he wants you to get where he wants to get your attention. I think there are times in our lives where we make a, a, a pattern of bad choices where we need to go through repentance. That should get your attention. Don't allow what is broken in your life. And here's another reality. We all come to God broken. Don't allow what's broken into your life to become part of who you are. Because just like we talked about earlier, if I never address my ankle, my ankle eventually starts to tear down my knee. And as my knee tears down, it starts to tear down my hip. And before long, this leg is no longer operable the way it is. And it's the same with sin. 
It's the same with the brokenness in your life. If you don't address it here, it starts to bleed in over here. And then from here, it starts to bleed in over here. So embrace the struggle, but address what is broken. Be honest with yourself in front of the Lord. Ask him to renew your strength. Ask him to heal your broken parts. But also follow through yourself. And realize sometimes rehab can be painful. And then last but not least, and this is where I, this is really, this is what I came up with because this is what I really think he was leading us to with the whole Esau and the sexually immoral and selling his birthright. I've said it a lot like this. Don't exchange your eternity for, for momentary satisfaction. I've said that a lot. I've said that probably for 15 years here. So I try to say it to you a little bit differently, maybe actually a little bit more in your face. Don't forsake your eternal reward by feeding the flesh. That's exactly what Esau did. And those who are sexually immoral, that's exactly what they're doing as well. He fed his flesh with a bowl of soup. They feed their flesh with a moment, with another person. So don't forsake your eternal reward by feeding the flesh and desiring earthly or worldly things because they will all lead you astray. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been washed in his blood? Have you dealt with persecution? Have you been disciplined by the Lord? Have you felt the struggle that comes with the relationship and the true testing that God does to us, the refining that God does to us? Have you felt that struggle? Have you been washed in the blood of Christ? Have you had your sins forgiven, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, been added to the kingdom of God? Again, for those of us who have, we are overcomers. We are on the side of victory. I know we're outnumbered. Isn't that the beginning of every good battle story you've ever read in your life? It's insurmountable odds. The world is against us. Again, Paul, who was thrown in prison and went through all these struggles, what did he write about it? He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter if it's the whole world. Renew your posture. Renew your resolve. Make better choices. Is that the life that we're living? Are we, being honest with, are we being honest with ourselves before the Lord? And are we fixing what is broken? Where are you at today? If there's a need to respond to the invitation, you can come as together we stand and sing.
Thank you, Matt. I have just a few announcements and reminders before we close. Most of you that are here tonight know that for more than 50 years we've been providing Christmas gifts for the children at Mount Dora Christian Home. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of that tradition, a part of that ministry, there's a few more names on the table in the foyer. And then my favorite part, you can see them actually open those gifts on December 17th at a party here. Uh, so if you can do that or want to do that, please take advantage of that. The memorial service for Maxine Ormiston is next Saturday, December 3rd at 11 a.m. Please plan to be a part of that. An update on some of our sick. Rachel and Courtney Wall both have COVID. Uh, all of you know that's very dangerous for Rachel. Please keep both of them in your prayers. Kathy Eggleston's mother had a heart attack recently and needs bypass surgery, but right now she's not strong enough for that. Please pray that she can get strong enough and have that surgery. Also, please continue to pray for uh, Sandy Tagto as she's recovering from heart surgery as well. Thank you. Sing each step I take and then have our closing prayer. Each step I take, my Savior goes before me, and with his loving hand, he leads the way. And with each breath, I whisper, I adore thee. Oh, what joy to walk with him each day, each step I take. I Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for all the many rich gifts in our life because we know all good things come from Thee. We ask that You be with those of our number that are traveling. Let them make it home safe so that we can see them again really soon. Please be with our loved ones that live far away. Keep them safe and healthy as well. We ask that You go with us as we go our separate ways. Help us to keep, us, keep our heads up and our eye towards the goal. 
Help us to stay healthy and happy until the next time we meet. We pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.